Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Izzy Hayes, an awfully loud introvert and everyone's favourite resident alien, Izzy is a creative strategist interested in creating work that connects with humans and the world around us. Previously a designer, now a project strategist at MultiAdapter, they are on a mission to blend those roles, working on diversity and inclusion projects on the side. Izzy is proudly a true nerd for Google Workspace, the colour yellow, breaking both industry moulds and really tricky problems. Izzy says, equal doesn't mean we're all the same. It means we're all equally respected for being different. Welcome to the show, Izzy. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. I feel truly known after that introduction. (laughs) I love that quote. That quote's awesome. Well, our seven quick fires then, Izzy, Mac or PC? Mac, all the way. London or Paris? Oh God, Um, probably London, but very close second, Paris. Pancakes or croissants? Oh, God. Um, uh, Sacrilegious because I'm in France, but probably pancakes. <laughs> uh, sheets or slides? Oh, slides all the way. 100% slides. Uh, David Shrigley or David Hockney? Ooh, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Shrigley. Shrigley on a weekday, okay. Hockney on a weekend. Perfect. Two more. Gilmore Girls or Shits Creek? Shits Creek. Nice. Last one. Scissor Sisters or Elton John? Oh, somebody has tipped you off for these, I swear. Elton John, Elton John. (laughs) (laughs) No, we heard you were raised on both. (laughs) Ah, goodness, the tweets speak for themselves. You know, Elton John. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Izzy, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much once again. To start the show, we always like on Call to Action to celebrate the often non-linear but usually remarkable route that guests have taken to get into their careers and I know that the commonly non-linear path of a designer is something that you like to talk about too so could you tell our audience about that and also about your first ever job and what you regard as your first proper job in design and strategy? Yeah for sure I think like most people to begin with I had sort of a lot of different jobs when I was younger sort of just trying to make money um I used to uh in Florida I used to sell off all of my art coursework to try and pay for things so I'd sell off all my paintings <laughs> um, when I was in high school there I used to translate um at parent-teacher conferences for Spanish parents so I used to make some money doing that and then when I went into university I used to keep myself afloat and designing for um all of the photography students so they were very into like into like printed editorials then so I used to um, get into InDesign and do all their things for them to make some money there. But I think my first 
real job probably um, that I consider to be real at least. Um, in university, I used to um, give university tours and I always joke about that now because I, I love presenting and people hate that I love it. Um, and I look back now and I basically just got to go around and present the university to people. And now I wonder and I worry about how many potential students I might have scared off. Um, but that was sort of the first legal and official payroll I was on. So that's probably the one I should give. Oh, wow. And then in terms of my first real job, well, I guess I'm technically still in it now. So um, during my degree, I did a couple of internships and then I graduated and stumbled into Multiadapter, which was so supposed to be um, the first of a couple of internships, uh, but they ended up keeping me around. So I guess I got really, really lucky and I started there as a designer about three and a half years ago. And you say you stumbled in. How, 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 why did you say stumbled? Why didn't you just walk straight in? <laughs> so I think they actually, um, they found me at DNAD or something like that. So I didn't, I, I didn't approach them. So I was really, really lucky in that I just got an email one day and they were like, oh, we, we like this book you made. Would you like to come in an intern with us? And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is a big moment. Yeah, luckily they were my first internship and I really, really enjoyed it. And I had to <laughs> write some emails to everybody else saying I wouldn't be able to make it. And I've been there ever since. Regardless, not as a designer, that fell apart fairly quickly. But yeah, I've been there for nearly four years. Oh, amazing. But so at some stage, you did actually make a shift, though, from from designer to strategy or to strategist. Sorry. Why, why did you why did you pursue strategy? I think, to be honest, it was not an intentional pursuit at all. Um, when I when I graduated, um, so I did a graphic design degree at the Arts University of Bournemouth. And when I graduated, I think you could ask anybody back then. I, I loved design more than anybody. I loved making things. I loved the craft. I was always painting strange things and laser cutting things and making books and everything was very hands-on and tactile. And I absolutely loved creating. And I truly thought it would be forever. <laughs> and then about three months into my first design job, I just had a bit of a break- breakdown and it all went out the window. <laughs> and I took about a month off work and then I came back. And we were like, okay, you really like the thinking. You really like the research. Um, so I got to work quite a lot with one of Multidapter's co-founders, Andy, who's our um, strategic director. And we literally just sort of overnight began to bring more strategy into it. And it turned out that it fit really well and it worked really, really well. And they gave me sort of a huge opportunity to do that. And so I'm very lucky in that I was just able to slip into strategy, which I know most people, it's really, really hard to find somewhere that will either let you do a strategy internship or test out those things. So yeah, I'm hugely grateful for that. But it honestly was an accident and never intentional at all. Yeah, I think that's often the way, though, in truth. And maybe it's just something that's easy to say retrospectively, especially for me, having spoken to, uh, I guess, lots of people who have taken a a kind of non-linear or or slightly, sometimes slightly illogical route into this industry that we, we work in. But I think that's really important. Well, I think it is. But do you think it's important as well to have that other kind of view of different types of work, albeit in, wrapped up in the same industries? Yeah, I, I think so, for sure. I mean, I don't think it's everything. And I think there are other advantages you can bring. But I think it's uh, an easy advantage to bring in this world. You know, that I was I was a designer. I sort of almost grew up designing in a way. And I have a real viewpoint and understanding of how the designers on the team work and how they think and what they might need from me and how best I can sort of give that. So I, I think in this regard, for sure, it definitely is really, really useful that I was a designer first 
And, you know, I've sort of been called a design strategist or a creative strategist or a project strategist, depending on the day or the client. But in reality, day to day, I think given that background, I still get to work an awful lot on sort of the creative conceptual parts of um, branding projects. I get to get sort of hands on um, with the designers in a capacity that maybe I wouldn't be allowed to do before. So in, in that way, my role is sort of formed around me, um, which, is, which is quite fortunate. And I think yeah, having that design background really helps me to probably em empathize more with um, the rest of the team in a way that maybe I personally wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Yeah, I also, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I also wonder if when you're at university, it can be quite difficult to really understand what the different roles are that are available in, in you know, in the industry. Oh, 100%. I, I think we, we all thought we were going to be designers. There was one girl I remember who wanted to be a project manager and she was very much an outlier. And we were all like, oh, wow, you really know what you're going to do. And that's really different. And we were all like so wrong looking back. But we were really presented sort of design as the only option. And I think um, as a result of that, I'd like to spend quite a bit of time at the moment talking to students at different universities and doing talks with them about, you know, there are there are different roles in that and trying to introduce them to them earlier because, I mean, looking back, if somebody had told me I could have been a strategist when I was in uni, I probably still would have said no and tried being a designer for a while because I loved it so much and I didn't know. Um, but I also think like the the bubble you're in during some sort of like creative degree and when you're forced to just make things all the time, it's almost that you you're creating in such a different way to what you're going to be doing in the real world for sure and I think um, coming into any industry a big part of that learning curve is learning about um, office culture and how hierarchy works and different parts of the role that you're going to have to deal with like emails and communication all of those things that you really never even had to try before in university when you're just making so I think regardless that that experience is going to shape what you end up doing. Yeah, for sure. I also think maybe that the hearing roles or um, the word designer has a lot of existing meaning. It's actually quite easy to obtain and, and to, to reference even in a, you know, the youngest of minds. But the idea of a strategist, what, what, what one of those might do is probably quite, quite removed and quite alien for a lot of people. But, but as, you, as you also quite rightly, in my opinion, say, I, I've heard you say that you think job titles can be total bullshit. And the truth is that they are mostly a blend anyway, whether it's a blend of office culture, as you referenced there, or it's just a blend of, of, of remits and, and that strategy actually can be very creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think especially and even going beyond strategy and design, but into project management or account management or that sort of thing. I think what I believe and what I always tell students, people are asking anyway, is that in every agency or every different studio or every job or every city, like that role title is going to mean something completely different. Um, and I think that that title gives you like a rough mold of what they want you to fit into. But you're, event you're essentially you're just going to make it whatever you want to make of it, aren't you? And I think in terms of thinking they can be a bit bullshit. I mean, <laughs> I think sometimes job titles have more to do with someone's age more than like anything to do with the person. I always say, and this might be a very solo belief, but it's one that I believe in quite firmly is that the best like designer or craftsperson, they can be like incredible at what they do and what they make, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to somebody wanting to manage or be like a leader. And that seems to be like the natural linear progression in like a lot of industries like ours, I think, where you get to a certain point where you're so good at making that they expect you to manage other people. And I, I don't, I don't think that's always necessarily the way. Um, and that might be very controversial, no. but um, I think no, you know, I don't think so. 
they could be a senior, senior, senior craftsperson, and then there could be somebody much more junior who's just better at managing. Um, yeah, so I, I always just say the job title is what you're going to make of it. Yeah. No, I fully agree with that last point. In fact, I recorded with um, a good friend of mine, Nick Ellis, who also runs a, um, a, a relatively small, albeit bigger than GASP, um, independent agency. And we both made the same point in as much as, <clears throat> excuse me, people typically become good at something to a stage where they want to start a business. But running a business and managing people is a completely different skill set and uh, one that very few people, I think, are blessed with. Yeah, I guess that's where that's where true partnerships are born, right? And that's why we do um to go against everything need teams of different roles right because it helps to establish whether you have the right mix of people to make something happen you mentioned there that you you um you partner with one of the co-founders at multi-adapter i think that's amazing and there i'm increasingly hearing about particularly in the kind of strategy uh, roles within businesses that people are typically encouraged to pair up or at least see the huge benefits from that and then coupled with the fact that you have kind of a hybrid type job role is that quite common in your agency for people to have that that mix yeah so I think there's really two points there so I get to partner up with Andy because we're the only two strategists um so we get we do that together and it's a huge advantage to be able to work with someone much more senior and myself and I think it helps provide like a good blend of ideas we've been working together for quite a while now so I think I think um we're in a good sort of spot there. But in terms of the hybrid role, I think that's something multi-adapter where I work, we're increasingly believing in that, you know, I sometimes before some, some whatever project management role, sometimes I'll be involved with the design team. I'm primarily a strategist, but that doesn't mean that I'm sort of only allowed to research and um, write strategy as it were. And I think we increasingly see that, you know, designers should have an element of project management skills for them, not to detract from project managers having that as a role. But um, I think we see the, the benefit in hybrid, especially as a relatively small team. There are 12 of us and how everybody being able to um, add an extra string to their bow can make us stronger and sort of more flexible as a team. Yeah, fantastic. In fact, I've just remembered it was Zoe, Zoe Skaman who on her episode, she talked about how she first started in the world of strategy. And it was very much the, the way the agency she worked at operated was to partner someone often quite senior and more experienced with someone who is you know relatively fresh to the job and and I, I I heard her talk about it again recently actually and she's she's a huge advocate for that type of partnership albeit with you and Andy as you said you were you were the only two strategists so it probably was a slightly more of a default move but nonetheless it sounds very wise yeah I, th- I think I think it works he sort of helps to balance out some of my that's more wild or rebellious thinking with yeah. is he know this actually works and I'll be like but we could do something different um but yeah no I, I think I think it's been a good partnership we're also very very different people so I think <laughs> that helps us to make the most of it yeah well that's again that's that's hugely important and then and then speaking then of, of people being different this is a bit of a stretch perhaps but I know you're a fan of research and workshops and getting really hands-on and actually talking with people, which seems to be something that, you know, so many people seem to either lack the resource or the common sense to do that. In um, Sarah's episode, who obviously nominated for you for to appear on the pod, we chatted about strategy in the wild and getting out and talking to real people. That's something that you understand to be hugely vital too, am I right? Yeah, I think so, truly. And I think looking back, this is when I should have known that I would have been a strategist 
in university and we were given sort of our own leeway to do our projects, I would go out to local primary schools and speak to all of the kids and go around and interview random people and set up weird workshops to talk to people from the university and that sort of thing. And everybody else seemed to think it was a bit bizarre. But I'd like to think that, you know, you can't attempt to design something for like a world if you don't have any idea who's living in it. Um, and I think that's something that we really sort of try to instill today, whether that be talking to people over Zoom or interviewing people or even, you know, people may disagree. But I think there's power in like a survey and just getting something raw out of people is really important. And I mean, um, yeah, I, I truly believe that the workshops and the research and everything at the beginning of strategy is that's that's the fun part. But it's where you're going to find the things that you don't even expect to hear. I think as strategists, we're so often sort of thrown into a world that we're unaware of, be it to do a, a brand for an ad tech company or do an advertisement for some sort of AI company, that you have to really rely on the expertise of the, the people that are part of that business, their customers, the people who are sort of live in that world day to day. And you're just sort of a, a guest there trying to glean the special things that can help you to design something that will speak to them. So I think it's it's almost impossible to believe that you could create something that will reflect and speak to those people without actually talking to them, whether that be speaking to them face to face or just sending them an email. I think that even a tiny bit of research is better than no research. So I'm all for the all for the scrappy as well. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, and to be honest, when you say it out loud, when you know, I've noticed when we've said it out loud in meetings, it just seems so blindingly obvious and just and just common sense. But it is it's so important. Do you think though? Um, I mean, you're 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 currently based in France, but you've lived. I, I believe this is right. You've lived in about ten different countries. I think it's about ten, but I haven't about, counted. About 10, so it could be closer up. to eight, or it could be closer to twelve. But yeah. Wow. Presumably, that experience of kind of so many different walks of life and cultures and contexts, that has maybe helped you in your role as a strategist to understand the variety of people and behaviours and characteristics and, and life. I, I like I like to think perhaps to a degree, obviously, I'm, I can only walk in the life that I'm sort of in. But I think being exposed to so many different cultures, be it from being living in sort of a really southern state in America to I've lived in New Zealand and countries that don't speak my language so France I've lived in the Caribbean and you know I think that that has helped to understand that I think as people we can often believe that like our, our bubble is the whole world right and I think actually living in some of those other places really helps you to understand that even if you can't possibly imagine it it might be how other people are thinking or how other people are living and I do think more than knowing anything about those places, it just helps me to think that the way that I'm looking at something or the way that I'm reading something might be completely different to how it would be perceived or talked about somewhere else in the world. I think just having really lived and experienced that will hopefully stay with me forever and help me to ask better questions. Um, but yeah, I think just anything getting out of your bubble, though, you don't have to live in other places. I think and I think Sarah talks about this quite a lot, just traveling places and speaking to other people and just getting out there will help you to show, you know, just to, to widen your world, really. I also think it's not ne it's, it's not even about necessarily knowing things about the locations you're in it's almost knowing that you don't know things about the place that you are like being in that I I you know my um, my own experience of living abroad pales in, in comparison to yours but I have lived in Indonesia and I've lived in well, I was going to say Spain but Basque country to be more precise and that being in and amongst you know in you know in, in a in a world that felt so different I think was significant for me because it really did burst that 
um, metaphorical bubble that you just spoke of that can easily exist in you know all walks of life and all industries. So just knowing that you don't know things is is also a I think a key part of that. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Actually, it's more knowing what you don't know, isn't it? That's really really true. And just as a con- just to constantly remind yourself that you probably you, we don't know everything. Nobody can know that, can we? So we can't. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point. Do you think there's an overemphasis then on the power of, of data then as opposed to actually getting out and talking to people? Because people people do need to make informed decisions. And, you know, maybe maybe it is an over-reliance on data and spreadsheets as opposed to getting out and actually seeing other people and, and, and getting to talk to other people and watching other people. I, I do have a tendency to enjoy the qualitative more over the quantitative, but I think I think both have their values. And I think, and this is probably going to be very much disagreed with, but I think once you go out there and talk to a lot of people and do sort of some qualitative research, you can, to some extent, like draw numbers from that and draw a consensus from that that will help to substantiate it. But I think it's really, it's probably the 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 pairing of qualitative with quantitative that makes it powerful, isn't it? I think um, actually talking to people is going to add a level of colour that you would never get just from numbers. But I say this as someone who can't really do maths, so I probably don't really understand numbers (laughs) as well as I should do. (laughs) There's obviously huge power in data and, you know, just getting some figures and a graph together is going to count so much more than no research at all, isn't it? And obviously, sometimes it can be overwhelmingly more powerful if you can present a number that says two people agree with this and 99 people agree with this other thing. But I personally, I love reading through like survey responses and finding people's weird quotes and the words they like to use and how they like to um, describe something. And I, I personally, I just I find there's so much, so much power in that and you learn so much from that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It was a, a very um, diplomatic, but more so very wise answer in terms of needing both qual and quant. I think one without the other is um, has has its own huge flaws. I spoke to a, um, a, a brilliantly smart statistician called Andrew Wilshire not so long ago, and I'm going to completely gut his words here, but he, he referenced data and kind of spreadsheet data as the art of concealing data. Because, you know, in order to drill it down to a basic number, you have to ignore significant context and things in order to make it that simple. Um, and that was one of the points that he made that I think was just just so true. But I do think we all need to get out in the world a bit more. It's so, it's so true, isn't it? I think you'll be you'll be looking through some sort of data forms to try and grab the numbers, won't you? And you'll have to cut out the word phenomenal before the word that you're looking to draw the data from weren't you or something or you'll have to lose something like that that could really help to drive out some ideas or just bring a more human touch into your research but yeah there's obviously huge power in seeing number especially at scale as well oh yeah for sure for sure they're easier to understand as well so often easier to sell speaking of which actually i meant to pick this up earlier you mentioned um that you never wanted to exist to sell things but you think that now it's made you really want to make brands real is it the word sell that maybe you had an issue with I say issue that might not be fair but I know the word sell can can seem quite um, almost a bit dirty to some people yeah and I'm I'm gonna take us back once again because this is like four years ago for me but when um, we were graduating everybody I was talking to they were all so excited to get into branding and quite honestly I said I don't ever want to do it um I wasn't interested in it at all 
uh, I, was, I really didn't want to exist to build brands to try and convince people to buy from them. And I now realize, <laughs> now four years older and wiser, that obviously we're building brands to do more than that. It's about reflecting people who work for them. It's not just about selling the product. A lot of the times you're branding a business that doesn't even have a product or that sort of thing. But yeah, I think we all spend way too much time trying to convince people to buy things in our jobs. And I think that's the reality. But I think that's the reality of a lot of jobs. But I think also we all have the power being in this role that we're in to try and make selling and buying more human or try and make it more based in truth and based in fact. And I think we have a responsibility to try and reflect businesses accurately and not just build this facades try and convince people to engage with their product or that sort of thing and I think we have a unique insight and power in being involved whether it be in the advertising of something or the branding of something in which we can get to truly know the business and the product and what they're about and I think there's also if we don't believe in that we should say that and probably not work with them you know and I think that happens often but I think if you are working with a company and a product you believe in or you see value in then you can help to communicate that in a way that will hopefully connect with people that need it yeah I I mean I I personally I think the word I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people practicing in our industry who perhaps would prefer to be in the more kind of pure creative uh, spaces I but bizarrely I think from my group of friends growing up and going through college and university and all of that I'm I'm in the minority being someone who didn't pursue more pure kind of artistic uh, roles in, in my life and kind of fell into I suppose more commercial creativity I've always thought of it as applied creativity and I I think it's much more significant and meaningful than than some of my art friends might ex- might uh, admit. But there is always the word. There is a, always a kind of shame around the fact that that the industry sells. But I think the word itself needs to be maybe rebranded or at least reframed in a lot of instances. And your example then about um, certain brands not even selling products and just making them authentic and human is exactly exactly the right point. I meant I mentioned in your intro that you work on uh, diversity and inclusion projects in your spare time. What sort of projects are these? <laughs> so it's uh, I'm not even sure if the word project is correct. But um, when I first joined Multidapter, we were quite a lot smaller than we are now. We sort of flex in size over the years. But um, I've I've always been um, really interested in trying to build. A workspace and a culture that reflects more people and I think a lot of people agree with that and I think we can all say that in the branding industry for example yes it is very white yes it is very straight yes it is very cis yes it is very male and you know we sort of get to a point where we're, a lot of people have this realization that you know they've never worked with a female design director or you know they've never um, worked with somebody who isn't white on their design team and that sort of thing and I think it's always been something that I really believed in I think especially um, having lived in so many places and then I came into it and I was like okay I think this is maybe something that I could have impact on I could help to suggest and I think that also speaks to multi-adapters culture that I was allowed to say those things and suggest these things so I think part of it is just we aim to do quite a lot of talks with different universities we've done new blood workshops with DNAD to try and get more people in to learn more about um, what we're about I'm really interested in sort of talking about and having conversations about the different ways we as a business might hire and how can we how can how can we hire from beyond our circles? I think branding and advertising perhaps can be like quite incestuous sometimes. We're quite willing to hire people who are friends or who we know or who are recommendations. And I think I'm just really trying to 
do a small part in sort of helping to build both a business and a culture that is more likely to hire someone who doesn't look like us or who doesn't think like us or somebody from a different background or somebody who you know doesn't even have a design degree or has never thought about advertising and just really trying to build out a business and an industry I suppose that is more reflective of the people that we're trying to um, build brands for because at the moment you can't really you can't build a brand for someone who doesn't look like you or doesn't act like you or doesn't sound like you because you don't really know anything about them so I think you have to have a diverse team if you want to build um, diverse brands and products really yeah no I fully agree how how do you um so in, in your workshops and the talks how do you recommend that people do actually implement anything something just to make it just to make it more effective their their own hiring beyond their own circles and, and hiring beyond those who are reflections of themselves are there any tips that you can share that you talk of yeah so I think and this is shouting out to other people but I think there are so many um great sort of uh, job boards out there at the moment or directories of different people who design or create things that you can just go out and find with like very little effort so there are different directories of like black women who design or latinx who design and there are all sorts of different things that you can just go out there and find different people who you probably wouldn't find from your own linkedin bubble or there are great job boards that specifically target you know um people who are looking for a job in like an LGBTQ friendly company or that sort of thing. And I think just just going beyond maybe posting within our our blogs in the industry or just sharing things on LinkedIn that aren't likely to reach beyond like your within two friends connection worth of people. I think just making sure to try and get your your job advert out into a place that you perhaps wouldn't have thought of. You're just going to be able to connect with so many more people. Funny enough, we spoke to a wonderful guy called Doug Melville, who at the time was TBWA's first uh, chief diversity officer. He's since started a new role elsewhere. But one thing which he did, I think it was two, maybe three years ago, was he launched something called One Sandbox, which I, in my idiotic British English uh, mind didn't realize was essentially one sand pit <laughs> but uh, <laughs> effectively the name being that you know everyone in the same in, in the same sandbox but it's a it's a source for diverse companies all sorts news events and, and various other ways of it manifesting online but crucially to connect and, and and help hiring processes and look to bring in diverse vendors in the creative space and it has been hugely successful the last time I checked over I think 200 million dollars worth of uh, recruitment and and businesses uh, or business has been awarded via one sandbox but there are there are certain things like that which do exist um, it's just knowing that they exist and, and actively seeking them out to make it part of your business's process I, th- I think so for sure and I think secondary to my point there instead of just looking to hire different people. I think we all have to think, and I think this is a conversation that's coming up more and more, that this realization that the reason our industries look like this is because younger people aren't afforded the opportunity to think that they could be a part of this world. I think that's because it looks the way that it does and it sounds the way that it does and you never think that you could belong in it. So I think it's almost becoming a responsibility of people to engage more with university students, even younger students, even people who aren't in education and just opening up sort of the design world to them and showing them what it's about. At the beginning of um, 
COVID, I did a remote workshop with school. It's a program in London that runs like after school programs for people from like underrepresented backgrounds. We did this design um, workshop and it was just it was just amazing to see the creativity that came out of it. And people who, you know, who didn't know that design was a job or advertising was a job. So, you know, it's going beyond that and trying to build a future that looks more representative of the world by telling people that they can be a part of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge point. Really good point there, Izzy. I'd like to ask you some listener questions, if I may. You certainly can. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Um, We normally have two, but we've actually got three for you. So we'll start with Yuri. Yuri asks, do you have any advice for graduates who may not be sure where their career might be going or where it might even start? (laughs) Well... First of all, I thought I knew where mine was going and I was very wrong, if that's, help, <laughs> if that's helpful at yeah. all. So I, th- I think the most important thing is, and this is probably hard to hear, but I think the most important thing is if you don't know, I think it's just trying to start and just getting in there and trying to do things. And I think when people ask this, I normally sort of say, I think if you can just get into a studio or get an apprenticeship somewhere or find a mentor or someone to talk to, you can just slowly begin the process of trying to find out what's right for you, what's not right for you. And I think you just really have to listen to your gut. So yeah, just just getting started, I think is the most important thing. But also, if you don't have the opportunity to do that, then I think there's a lot of value in seeking out, um, I'm a big reader, just trying to find like, there's so many blogs and articles about there, like, this is really basic, but like a day in the life of what a design job is like versus like a design researcher or versus like a strategist. And I think you just begin to get a feel from that. But I think, yeah, trying to get your foot in somewhere, be it as something maybe you don't want to do, but just getting in there and beginning to get a feel of how things work um, is really helpful. Yeah, well said. Great answer. Number two is from Anna. Anna asks, what are your favorite strategy stroke design apps and tools that help you day to day? So we know you're a Google fan already. Yeah, this this is quite hard. And I probably shouldn't be a Google fan because obviously they're like a huge capitalist conglomerate, but their tools <laughs> have made my life very easy. I um I remember sort of half forcing multi to transition to Google Slides because we couldn't deal with like handing a single PDF back and forth for commentary. And it felt like it was such a dated technique. I was like, look, we're gonna move to this system where we can all be there together. And um haven't looked back since. And I think, yeah, so I'd highly recommend <laughs> in the old Google Workspace and Explore. Should be getting paid, yeah. honestly, at this point. Um, but my <laughs> other favorites are, as a strategist especially, I think I'm always finding things and saving things. This is this is very small, but my favorite bookmarking tool is called um, Raindrop. It's made by a really um, small engineer and they respond really well to like um, uh, their clients sort of needs and wants. And it's, just, it's honestly just the best way for saving things. And another tool I really, really like, I could go on about tools forever. This is the best question for me. Hugely, hugely love um, Notion for like it's really, really good for researching and maybe writing articles or blog posts and being able to drag in um, all sorts of um, links or you can even make it work with Figma as like a design tool. So I think just finding like the sort of tool that's going to meet your needs is also really important and really good time saver. Oh, and and a classic calendar. I mean, Google Calendar, blocking out your time will save you so much time in the long run. So I think, yeah, <laughs> those are my recommendations. Cool. So that's Raindrop, Notion and Google Calendar. I think so. You did that's... well to limit it to three. 
Oh, I could keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And then, um, so we normally only have two, but, but as I mentioned to you pre-recording, Sarah has, has sent one in and uh, Sarah's question is great. She says, the year is 2022. There are no brands anymore. There are no colors or typefaces. It's an aesthetic free and brand free world. What is Izzy Hayes doing to make a living instead? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Um, <laughs> she knows me too well as the question. What would I be doing instead? Well, you've sold artwork, you've done translation, you've done guided tours, all sorts already. Goodness. I like to think I would probably be something to do with like finding things out. So maybe um, a journalist, some sort of like investigative journalist, maybe, or I'd actually probably just really also like to like teach young children and like help them learn things um in like a different way to traditional education so maybe one of those two things <laughs> very good very good answer as well she was trying to stump you there i know i know <laughs> it's okay it's okay i deserve it <laughs> <laughs> the uh the final part of the interview then is is our four pertinent posers starting with what advice would you give to your younger self younger izzy nothing is as important as you think it is I used to think that whatever I was working on or whatever I was studying for, whatever I was worrying about was the be all and end all of the entire world. And I think I probably didn't realise until like a year and a half ago that nothing is nothing really matters quite that much. And I think that's probably quite a common thing to realise growing up. But what you're doing and especially working in branding I'm not a doctor or a lawyer I'm not saving anybody's life or anything like that and yes what we do is important but it's it's never as important as you think yeah yeah why is that it comes up it, it does come up quite a lot actually that one but it's definitely it's definitely something I think most of us have suffered with it's bizarre I think it's probably because we all want to we want to believe it is really important um and again that's probably something that <laughs> helps keep us all in a good place um and obviously things are important but I just don't think they deserve quite as much worry as we always give them and as a highly anxious person that is hard for me to say but I think I uh, yeah the world probably isn't going to end whether you're doing anything so I also wonder if I had this uh, it might be quite harebrained actually but I had this theory about uh, just like how relative time is depending on your own age so to give you an example my um, my youngest who is only three years old she she really struggled uh, going back to nursery after you know the prolonged lockdown and being at home and the mm -hmm. way I understood it was that lockdown represented about 30% of her life whereas it was probably I don't know an alarmingly small percent of my aged life um, and so it was it was so much more significant and I wonder if when you're younger because you know when birthdays birthdays don't ever seem to come around when you're younger because you know if you're turning 10 that last year is 10% of your life but if you're turning 50 it's only what 2% so I'm sure there's I'm sure there's something with that kind of relative way of experiencing time that, that kind of changes as you get older. It's definitely true I suppose a decision you're making when you're like 13 is taking is like much taking up much more of your life than the decision you're making when you're like 34 right yeah okay I I, I think that, there we go I think I think you've built on my point I think you've made it much much better <laughs> <laughs> that's never happened before wow no, no, you added in some good science <laughs> <laughs> uh, num number two uh Izzy if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be and why 
so I, I think there'll be a couple of things, but I think my main thing at the moment, and I've sort of touched on this, is um, I think we should ban relying so much on personal recommendations and reach outs to hire people. Um, because I think hiring within our own circle isn't going to help us to expand it anymore. And there are so many tools and resources out there to go beyond um, just trying to hire or find people that way, be it even like people to collaborate with or people to work with. And I know it can be the easy thing to do to find someone on a personal recommendation if you're on like a tight deadline. I completely understand that. But I think, yeah, we should we should stop stop relying on hiring from our own circles so much. Cool. Yeah, good one. Good one. That's that's not come up before. I like it. Um number three, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Now these don't have to be work related. This this is wide open. Okay, I've been thinking about this. I've got a little mix because I traditionally love to read. Um, so I've got a bit of both. So for the work related ones, and I imagine some people have read this, but I truly, truly love a book called The Art of Innovation by IDEO's Tom Kelly. And there are obviously lots of books that have come out of IDEO, but it's my favourite one. And I think it really speaks to sort of in two parts. I think my favourite things about it are that it really, I'm sorry if this was supposed to be a short answer, but I'm going to go longer. No, no, go on. <laughs> Um, it speaks to sort of building a culture where, as much as I don't like the word innovation, where innovation is really allowed to happen and building like a really curious culture. And then it speaks a lot to like a lot of the products that IDEO have invented and developed over the time and how much like um, first person research was like really integral to figuring out how those needed to work and what needed to happen and how without speaking to people, they wouldn't have been able to find the solution or build that product. So that's my first book recommendation. My second one is fiction and it is called um, Real Life by Brennan Taylor. And I think it came out last year, but it's about um, a gay science student in America at university. And I just think it's very entertaining fiction reads and a really good view into what it's like to um, be black and in STEM um, at universities in America. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually not a light read, but it's not very, very intense. And it's really, really good. And my third um, read, in contrast, is quite um, quite out there. It's called um, Social Dreaming. Um, it's by Anthony Dune and Fiona Rabi. It's from MIT Press. And it's essentially a book about like speculative design and like speculative futures. And I, I found this randomly in the library one day when I like ventured beyond the graphic design section at university. And it's about like how design can be used as a tool to create not just things, but also ideas. And it can get quite philosophical and high level. Um, and some people say it's really hard to read in one go. So I just like to keep it and just like read a page every once in a while. But they talk about cool things like what if we could develop a solar powered kitchen restaurant or like um uh, self self-pollinating flowers how that would change the bread industry i don't know all sort of sort of speculative questions and it's really a book about creating questions so um <laughs> definitely go in there when you're sort of sitting down comfortably and ready to think big um but yeah i really like those three books yeah now that last one sounds great funny enough we've had we've had numerous well, hugely talented strategists on none more so than the um, late, great Murray Calder. And he and both he and, and in fact, Zoe Scaman, who I'm also a huge fan of, they're both prolific sci-fi readers, specifically for that point, because sci-fi, much like social dreaming, it sounds like, explore so many what-if questions and, and just push the boundaries of what-if. And I think what-if what if is, is, is the key and the crux of so much um, of the best thinking and, and needs to be. So um, I like the fact that's come up. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, what what is sci-fi if like just outside of the realm of possibility, right? It's scary because we could see it happening in the day to day. So, and funnily enough, people do people do describe that book as like a sci-fi book, even though it's completely non-fiction. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really good point. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. No, that's that's great. I'm going to read that actually because I um I have sci-fi dyslexia and I can't read sci-fi books. I don't know why. I've tried. I promised Murray I would try and read his favourite books and I failed miserably and I'm going to try and pursue it. But my my brain just doesn't allow it. I can't read on, but I'm going to pursue and I'm going to try that one specifically uh, because it sounds perfect for me. I'm sure I'm sure he will know if you manage to read Social Dreaming. I'm sure he'll <laughs> <Yeah>. be proud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't believe it. Um, uh, and then uh, number four then is, is we we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I will do. And I found this question very, very difficult. I didn't know whether to bestow on a person or a thing or anything like that. Um, and there are a lot of people I could bestow it to, but I would like to dedicate this episode um, to somebody called Ellie Hilton Don. She is global brand coordinator at Google for Startups. And um, she came to work at Multidapter as um, a freelance project manager. And she really, really taught me everything about um, sort of work-life balance, I suppose, and like really understanding how you can find your place in the business, but how it's not necessarily your entire life um and also just how you can make the most of your work i suppose and it was yeah it's a she's, she's a, a amazing friend and it was just seeing someone who works and who works at google obviously which is such a huge company with many many points and that she was able to have that distance from work and let it be her best and how she sort of taught me that was amazing so yeah amazing fantastic okay well this episode is very proudly dedicated to ellie hilton dom our final call to action is for all of our listeners can head over to this episode's listing. It will have links to everything we've talked about, all of the books, real life, social dreaming. We'll, we'll link to uh, Multi Adapter too. How else can how else can they get more Izzy Hayes? Quite easily, I think. I think just social media. I'm just um, at Izzy Hayes on everything because it turns out there aren't that many other IZZI Izzy Hayes in the world. So that that's that that's how you can find me. Perfect. Easy. Amazing. Well, brilliant. Thank you for joining us, Izzy. It's been it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so, so much for having me. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.